Hey, this is Samantha Lishak with Absolute EHS, and I'm here today with McGarrett Sutherland. Hey, McGarrett, Hello. how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm pretty I'm well, thank you. It's really great to have you here. Thank you for having me. So can, before we dive right in, can you tell our listeners who you are and what you do? Sure. Um, so I am McGarrett Sutherland. I am a, I would say, younger uh, dentist. I'm a general dentist practicing in Portland, Oregon. Um, I went to school for college and dental school here and did a one-year sort of residency program training in hospital dentistry in Seattle at the University of Washington, where I learned a lot more about medicine and how dentistry integrates into it and how you have to often modify certain treatments for folks who might be really sick. Um, and since 2019, uh, in the summer, I've been practicing general dentistry full-time and um, uh, that's pretty much it as far as professionalism goes. That's, that's a lot, <laughs> that's a lot of teeth. Um, so before COVID hit, uh, it sounds like you were at least in the Pacific Northwest. Can you tell us what your day-to-day -day looked like and what your practice looked like? Sure. So when I first started out working, I, uh, couldn't find my ideal, um, sort of office setup. I really didn't want to be a practice owner right out of the gate because I just wanted to focus on the clinical side of things. And I knew that, if I got into managing staff and payroll and figuring out leases and equipment and everything, it would just be too, too much, too overwhelming and too stressful. So when I started out, I took a couple of part-time jobs. Um, they were really at two different offices. One was in a corporate dental setting and the other was just one day a week at, um, I would say sort of a higher end private practice. And so my day-to-day -day kind of varied. And um, that's one reason that I'm grateful to have found a more sort of permanent home now because I kind of had to wear different hats depending on what day it was because the patient populations were pretty different and the settings of the practices were very different. I mean, a lot of dentistry is just about forming and managing people's expectations of what they need and how to sort of do it. And um, I felt a little scatterbrained and I was kind of wondering, oh, is this really for me? Like maybe I should just hang tough and find a better setting. And I managed to adjust to it pretty well, um, but it was, you know, really my starting my career after my whole life just being in education, education, education. And it was very different, um, kind of a difficult transition in some ways. Um, but it was, uh, you know, full time, I would say, uh, four days a week at the most and, um, hard work, a lot of people to see, um, the dentist is ultimately really responsible for looking after someone's entire oral health. And sometimes you only get five minutes to make friends with someone you never met before and look in their mouth and look at their x-rays and try to form a picture of what is going on and what can we watch what um and then going and doing treatment so fillings or taking teeth out or doing crowns or dentures or all of it and uh so that was kind of kind of the picture before covid happened 
So you mentioned <clears throat> you mentioned uh, kind of going between the two offices that there were different types of clients. So you had different things to focus on. Uh, I don't know if there's a way to elaborate on the type of client or what you had to look for. Sure. So um, a lot of it, I think a lot of the patient populations that you see as a dentist are really determined by insurance because insurance unfortunately kind of rules everything about who we are able to see and um, therefore what sort of, you know, age or gender or socioeconomic background the patients have. Um, I didn't really run into a lot of language barrier issues, although sometimes that was an issue. And I really pride myself on communication skills because I think that's something that could really use a lot of work in, in dentistry. Um, just letting people know what you're seeing and what you want to do about it, but ultimately like leaving the choice in their hands, because as far as informed consent goes, you have to be able to really explain to someone in layman's terms what's going on and then figure out whether they want to choose the best option for them. And a lot of times best is something that you as the practitioner want to decide, but a lot of times it comes down to money and time and fear and anxiety. And so it's a lot of different things to manage. Um, sometimes patients who have insurance that will cover a lot of uh, treatments will want the best because they look after their mouths and if they think something is wrong, they're gonna get it taken care of and the thought of losing their teeth terrifies them. And other people really don't care that much. Uh, you know, they've maybe gone through a life expecting that they have um, poor teeth generally because of their family or they were never able to afford really good care. So they wait until something hurts and then they come in and just want the tooth out. Um, and that is fine, but a lot of times if someone spends years of their life that way and eventually they don't have a lot of teeth left, you have to break the bad news of, oh, well now it's kind of too late to look at really giving you a definitive replacement and something that you're satisfied with, that you're able to keep clean, that you won't get cavities underneath again. Um, so figuring out what someone's expectations are and what they'll be able to afford is the, um, the juggling act. And a lot of times, depending on the setting that I was working in, I think people who go to a corporate office are used to having to wait because they know that the dentist and the staff are kind of overworked and too busy because of how the corporation will end up scheduling and, and running the practice um, because the staff ultimately doesn't have total control over it. Um, whereas people who might be going to a private practice don't want to wait and they want to have a solid relationship with the dentist, someone they've seen before, um, ideally for years, um, because then there's the trust um, that they can put their care in your hands and you actually will tell them what's best for them. Um, a lot of times when I was at the corporate place, I didn't know if I would see these people again. Um, not just because I didn't want to stay there forever, but sometimes folks will just show up after three years of no dental care and just want to check up. And then you might tell them, oh, you need a few fillings or everything looks good. And then you might never see them again, just depending on what their priorities are. 
Fair enough. So uh, tell me about how you heard about COVID. So I started hearing about it basically just on the news in general. I think a lot like a lot of people, um, I was reading the news more often just because of our general political situation, which we don't really have to get into, but I was paying more attention. And it was this stuff of, oh yeah, I heard on the radio, there's some gnarly virus from China and we don't really know what's going on with it. And it just sort of seemed to slowly build in the background of like, oh, more people are talking about it and it's showing up in other countries until suddenly it was kind of like, wham, it's in the United States and it's probably gonna spread places really quickly and we don't really know how to deal with it because it's spreading so fast. And it showed up um, for me affecting my life really in like January, February, I would say when we started to worry like, oh, how is this going to affect our practice? Like if people are scared to come in or if they're getting sick or they're worried that dental offices are going to spread it because we didn't know whether it would be spread in dental offices um, it was kind of like, this is going to be touch and go and people were concerned. So at my practices, um, before the state government basically said, we have to suspend everything and you can't practice dentistry at all, um, the schedule started to really dwindle and we didn't see sometimes, I mean, there were days when I would only see like maybe two or three patients the entire day and the rest of it was just kind of sitting on my hands, wow. um, and uh, then the uh, company that I worked for basically furloughed me and said, you know, until we have more information, we don't know when we'll be able to reopen. And in the meantime, you can apply for unemployment, which is what I did. All right. So, I mean, speaking of just dentistry, there's this general, you know, well, there's, there's, there's anxiety about going to dentist, and then there's this general fear about COVID and the dentist, mm -hmm. how, how did your profession, at least from your perspective, address that or did nothing really change? Um, well, I think some things changed, but probably a lot less than people might suspect. Um, there was a lot of preliminary information flying around online and a lot of dentists, because they couldn't work, um, took to Facebook and Zoom meetings like crazy and everyone was talking about, oh, well, we don't know about aerosols. And well, I set up two box fans in my operatory. So now it's a negative pressure room and everybody has to wear a giant plastic suit before they can do anything. Um, and it was just really before we knew how the virus behaved in that kind of clinical setting. Um, and it was especially worrisome for us at first, I think, because we have to generate aerosols as a um, just a consequence of what we do. Like we have to use, you know, drills and ultrasonic instruments for cleanings and things because um, it's just the nature of the game. And uh, so we were concerned about, well, is just distancing enough? Do we really have to, does everyone have to spend thousands of dollars on, you know, HEPA filters for new uh, air cleaners and everything and do N95s really work? And are there gonna be enough of them for us to use them? Um, so eventually once that kind of fervor settled down and we actually came up with guidelines for how to not safely I'd say, but with a minimum of risk 
reopen businesses. And we are considered essential businesses because, you know, it's not just exams and cleanings and x-rays, but also we see people whose faces get swollen and are at risk of having their breathing stopped by tooth infections. And it doesn't happen very often, but we really need to be there for those emergency patients when we can. So some dentists played it kind of fast and loose, like, oh, well, this isn't exactly safe, but it's not against the letter of the law. So we'll just stay open and do whatever we can for whoever feels safe enough to come in. And others were a little bit more cautious. Um, so now that the sort of question mark is getting a little smaller about how we can do this safely, um, we're starting to realize, and actually we, we have pretty good data that um, you're not gonna catch COVID in a dental office. Um, the person who's probably most at risk in the office is me because I see pretty much everyone who walks through the door um, and then the rest of the staff, because especially in there, if they're in the back office, then um, they're going to be needing to wear masks and be around aerosols and all of this stuff. Um, the safest person at the dentist is still the patient. And this kind of gets at a point of um, it's been safe to go to the dentist for a really long time because of all of the safety protocols that we put in, in place and all of the PPE that we wear, personal protective equipment, which basically dates back to the AIDS epidemic in the 80s, because once we realized that there was, hey, this other virus that uh, we didn't really know how it spread and whether it was safe to do dentistry and could anyone catch it and then have their life at risk, um, we started basically mandating that all surfaces need to be covered, everything needs to be disinfected, everything needs to be thoroughly sterilized, everybody has to wear gloves, which unfortunately was uh, maybe a little bit late um, for some people who just felt like it was fine to put their bare hands in someone's mouth, which just gives me the willies. <laughs> but um, all of this stuff started getting standardized in the sense that like, oh, if OSHA or the dental board found out that you weren't following infection control protocols, they would punish you. And so that's why I say not much has actually changed for our industry because it was like once people started figuring out, oh, well, we need to socially distance and barriers need to be put on things that can be and everything needs to be clean and people need to follow hand hygiene practices, all of this stuff is kind of what other businesses that had to be open needed to learn. And it was all stuff that we were all doing already in the first place. I imagine um, universal precautions and bloodborne pathogen training is part of what you do as a dentist. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's all required training. And as part of our continuing education requirements to keep our licenses um, you know, renewed and active, we have to do that. All of the, all of the dental boards mandate infection control training. Um, so now I wear an N95 whenever I do anything that could generate an aerosol and, uh, that's actually pretty much it as far as what's changed, because I was already wearing a new mask for every patient that I saw. I was always performing good hand hygiene before and after I touched anybody, always wearing gloves and safety glasses and everything. I did try wearing a face covering, like a, an actual shield at first, but because we have to wear magnifying glasses, it was interfering with my vision and um, 
I don't know that it offered that much extra protection anyway. So I don't wear one of those unless someone requests it. Probably good to but, be able to see if you have a drill in your hand. Yeah, well, and also because the the dentist has to really concentrate intensely when they're working, not just so that we don't actually harm somebody, but because um, a lot of what it takes to do a procedure safely and effectively requires a lot of uh, what we call technique sensitivity. So we really can't look away from someone's tooth or someone's mouth while we're doing those critical parts of the procedures. And that's where the rest of our staff comes in really. I mean, I couldn't work without my assistant because they are sort of zoomed out and focused on everything else. Um, but uh, until we have to get called away for doing a hygiene check or um, finishing a procedure to go see the next person. Um, it's intense concentration. It, uh, it takes a lot out of you. Hmm. So you had mentioned in your training that uh, you'd learn how to modify procedures and approaches for those who are very sick. I think you mentioned that with your hospital rotation. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that you are better suited to COVID, uh, COVID era dentistry than some of your uh, colleagues? Um, I would say not necessarily. I think um, part of the medical training for the particular kind of program that I did was helpful in a general sense to learn what the human body is and how it works and how our teeth and mouth integrate into it. But it's um, not training that was specific to um, dealing with a pandemic situation. So the average dentist's infection control procedures, I don't think would necessarily prepare them less than, uh, you know, I would be having had that training. Um, mostly, I think I just know, I have a better handle on what health and illness are, um, like what it looks like to see someone with is um, or liver failure or um, developmentally disabled people. That was another part of my training, you know, adults with Down syndrome and that kind of thing. All of these people need dental care, but we don't really think about that as an aspect of their daily life. And that is really more what my, what my training focused on. But we did have exposure to operating rooms and actually doing procedures in a fully sterile gowned up environment um, where it was basically, you know, the same standards of infection control as heart surgery or anything like that. Um, because we would see people who um, weren't able to tolerate dental care in any kind of outpatient setting because of disability or severe anxiety or, or whatever. So we would have to basically go through a whole health checklist of saying, okay, is it safe to put you under general anesthesia? And then we would take them to an operating room and take x-rays and do an exam and do all of the fillings they needed in one go, which sometimes was a lot of work for one particular patient. But when you have to, when you can't do things in stages, that's, uh, that's what it ended up being. So as far as general health and being able to evaluate people's wellness and, you know, capacity for tolerating the stress of dentistry, 
Um, I think I have a, a better perspective on that than maybe someone who didn't have that training. But um, as far as COVID goes, everybody's being safe. And that's why I think it's a really good time actually to go to a dentist because it's one of the safest things you can do. And you don't have to wear a mask. You actually can't. Um, well, we're, I'm pro masks personally, but. Oh, me too. But to have your mouth worked on, it doesn't, it doesn't work. That's fair. So um, on the, uh, on your personal timeline, we kind of left off where you got furloughed, you filed for unemployment, which I think a lot of people don't think as dentists and essential healthcare workers needing to file for unemployment. Mm -hmm. uh, it's surprisingly common from what I've been gathering. Um, so what, what happened next? What did you do? So I was just sort of at home, um, socially distancing, going to the store as little as possible, um, going for walks. That lasted about two months. Um, it was really frustrating and boring, <laughs> uh, which I'm sure anyone who had to undergo lockdown can relate to. Um, and I got contacted by the dental corporation that I was working for who were basically treading very lightly because of advanced safety protocols. I mean, as far as having fewer people in the building and putting up barriers behind the front desk and making everyone sanitize their hands and, and screening people for temperatures. Um, so it was limited work. It was, it was part-time. Um, for me when I, when I went back after a couple of months of furlough and quarantine. And I saw fewer people, but um, eventually things did start to pick up on, my, on the days when I was working, but it was definitely more part-time than I had been before. Um, and that is kind of what life looked like for a few months um, before I was contacted by someone else who works with a group of dentists and then um, eventually left, I left the corporate office and um, went into more of a private practice setting where I am full-time now. Congratulations. Um, yeah, thank you. I like it a lot. It's a much better fit for me and I'm able to see the kind of people and do the kind of work that I um, have wanted to do. And it hasn't been too hectic or crazy. Um, and I feel like I'm part of a good team who, you know, cares and does good work and takes care of people because that's what we want. That's what we would want for ourselves or any of our family members. Great. So one thing um, you had, uh, I maybe looked at your Facebook <laughs> uh, a while back, you had actually posted something about seeing more broken teeth. And that was actually around the same time that uh, fellow ergonomists and I were seeing a lot of people just having incredible ergonomic issues. It was around yeah. where most of America ended up working from home if they were allowed to. Can you elaborate on not only the broken teeth, but anything else you saw that you think might've been a consequence of this pandemic and the change in environment for so many people? Absolutely. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think, I mean, in terms of psychology and uh, things like exercise, health, and all of these different fields probably are seeing some surprising things that are a manifestation of 
this situation because even though cases of of COVID are really high, the average person isn't dealing with that. They're dealing with the stress of this whole situation. And it's a really weird kind of stress because it's kind of affecting every aspect of our daily life and in really unexpected ways. And the way that I seem to be seeing it is people are clenching and grinding like never before. <laughs> I think uh, I'm, I'm starting to get more interested in that because there's, there is a psychology behind it of people taking out their daily anxieties on their face muscles and their jaws and their teeth. A lot of people are already prone to uh, grinding, um, sometimes at night, sometimes during the day sometimes in their sleep when their brains aren't really in full control of what their, what their jaw muscles can do. But um, it's happening a lot more these days. I mean, people are coming in with weird headaches or toothaches that don't have a, a really obvious cause. And in my training, we sort of learned to think about how someone's bite is, is, uh, sort of calibrated or whether they're doing what we call parafunctional habits, um, things like chewing their fingernails or just uh, clenching their teeth together. And um, it's really difficult for people who are under a lot of stress to realize that they're doing that. And um, then they go to the dentist and we see, you know, cracks that are showing up around old metal fillings or, teeth that are really, really worn down just because they've been um, ground against each other. And so I think in the past year, I've made more night guards than uh, during any other period of practice. I mean, I haven't been doing this that long, but the office manager who's there has also confirmed that we're making a lot of night guards for people because they are taking this pandemic stress out on themselves and um, it's a really hard thing to realize that you're doing it and then make yourself stop. Um, whether it's, you know, being stuck in traffic and clenching your teeth together because of road rage or <clears throat> something being kind of off in your mouth and then you, you know, spend extra time kind of, uh, dealing with that area or, um, or clenching too hard or grinding a lot. Um, and it can have fairly significant dental consequences. I mean, people will wear their teeth down to the point where they get really sensitive or maybe even break in which case they'd have to have a crown or even a root canal or extraction instead of, um, just a regular filling. And, um, and it's tough but it's nice that we're able to do things for people in those situations. I try to just spend a lot of time with people making it clear to them that um, this is going on because of something that they're not consciously aware of, that they are definitely like clenching and grinding and, and I'll feel their chewing muscles and see, oh yeah, you have a, a trigger point there. Like this muscle is really fired up because of how you're positioning your jaw. And I can go through sort of stretches and massage and things like that to basically just do physical therapy for someone's jaws and TMJ um, because 
I mean, it's just like if you would go to a masseuse and they'd notice that your shoulders are really tight and it's like, well, yeah, there's a pandemic. <laughs> uh, it's kind of all connected in that way. Um, so that's, that's what I've been seeing a lot of these days. So for the uh, incredibly anxious or more importantly, underinsured or not uh, people who aren't able to see someone like you, what is there anything that we can do at home to either determine that we're in danger of having one of these grinding type issues or anything we can do at home to help prevent it if it's already occurring? The matter of seeing whether you have this kind of issue that's going on is to buy a cheap night guard um, because you can get these things that are made of sort of flimsy rubbery plastic at you know Walgreens or order them online. Um, most drugstores carry them, um, and they're not great, uh, but they're not made to be great. They're made to be cheap, and so you dunk this thing in hot boiling water or whatever, and then bite into it. Um, just following whatever the package recommendations are and then see if it's something that you can tolerate wearing. Because I think a lot of people grind at night when they're asleep, but that doesn't mean that it's not the kind of thing you can wear during the day. And the function of having something in your mouth like this is basically to be kind of an appliance. I mean, it's, it's a piece of plastic and it might be uncomfortable and it will take a few weeks to get used to wearing. But if you wear it and you can tolerate wearing it, like sleep with it in your mouth, um, you might notice that there are, uh, you know, grinding marks on it after a while, in which case it would show you that you are doing this kind of thing and haven't been realizing it. It seems to be pretty rare that someone will grind because something is in their mouth um, rather than, oh, well, I didn't grind before because it was just my teeth. Um, teeth fit together like puzzle pieces and they really like being in one particular location. And if you grind on them a little bit, you'll get this kind of sensory feedback thing because they, they move just a hair um, when you apply force to them. And it seems to be that kind of feedback that will cause us to um, clench and grind. And Another benefit of wearing an appliance um, like this is that it will open your mouth a little bit, which can also influence things like how much air you can breathe in when you're asleep. Um, because I'm starting to see a lot of people with clenching and grinding issues, which might not just be stress related, but also potentially sleep apnea related. And this is kind of a new thing in dentistry and it's just something that I'm getting curious about and trying to screen patients for because, you know, when you're at the dentist, they have a good chance to look at your tonsils and see how much room you have in your, in your airway, um, whether someone is congested or wakes up with fatigue or snores a lot. These are all easy questions to ask someone and see like, hey, I think you might actually be at risk for sleep apnea. And obviously that's not our um, scope of practice, but it's the kind of thing we can spot and send people to their doctor or an ENT doctor for. Um, because I think in combination with stress, if you have the issue of not breathing enough oxygen when you sleep, um, not only will you take it out on your teeth, but it will affect your whole health and it will make you more stressed. And these things can just sort of spiral out of control. 
So back to your original question, a cheap night guard is a way to see if you have an issue, in which case you can then bring it to your dentist and say, hey, I tried this and I think something's going on here. Um, or you can find out, oh, this isn't the sort of thing I can tolerate and um, how else can I, can I deal with my headaches or with my weird tooth pain? Um, because it won't feel like a toothache if you're writing on your teeth too hard during the day or night. Um, it will just feel sort of generally sore in the area. And um, then it comes down to sort of a mindfulness thing. You have to be able to be aware of what you're doing when previously you weren't. Um, it's actually natural for people to keep their teeth a little bit apart, um, just like a, a quarter inch or so, an eighth inch, and not a lot of space, but when they're not touching, they're not doing work and potentially harming each other. They're really only supposed to touch when we're chewing um, food, but um, I think a lot of people are keeping them together and tightening their muscles and getting that feedback that I was talking about more than they're realizing. So I tell people, try setting a phone alarm, you know, every 15 minutes or hour or whatever, say, hey, keep your teeth apart. And uh, you might notice that um, you were doing something that was not good for you. And there are other things like stretches and yawning and massage and stuff that you can do if you have uh, an issue with sore jaw muscles. But um, you know, I wouldn't encourage necessarily Google or YouTube as a way to get definitive answers for these, but I have actually found some YouTube videos from physical therapists and massage experts who will talk about um, things like trigger points and how to release them and, and get muscles to relax. So when it comes down to it, you should see your dentist and ask them if you have a problem. But if you're at home and can't see somebody, um, try to keep your teeth apart, maybe try a store-bought night guard and see if it does anything for you and uh, pay attention to things like tension headaches or sore jaws or anything like that because it might be a consequence of these habits. Interesting. So while we're, while we're talking about prevention at home, um, my understanding with teeth is they are one of the few things that can't actually regenerate or fix themselves. Is that mm -hmm still still true still holds true well i tell people there are cavities and then there are cavities <laughs> <laughs> um which uh requires some explanation um before my previous long-winded answer about clenching and grinding that is all sort of the biomechanical side of dentistry that is you know people using um physics of the way that their own jaws and teeth are set up to potentially cause themselves harm. Um, the other side of the coin of dentistry is fighting bacteria. Um, and bacteria have been on this planet a lot longer than we have, and they're going to be here by the time we all bite the dust. So it's a losing battle for sure. But if we can intervene soon enough and see the harm that bacteria can cause to our teeth, um, then we can get them out and uh, potentially, let's not say fix the problem because nothing that we do lasts forever, but we can um, help people keep their teeth uh, before they have to lose them or have to have damage done to them uh, in order to try to save them. And I don't mean damage like 
dental procedures cause damage, but the nature of it is that we have to drill in order to get something in a condition to have a predictable solution. We have to remove some tooth that we might not want to because it's in good shape, but can't tolerate the, um, the seal or the bite or the stress of a filling or a crown or something like that. Um, so that's why we like to fix problems early. So going back to there are cavities and then there are cavities. Um, sometimes people will go to the dentist and be like, oh yeah, they told me I had 17 cavities and you know now my life is over because I have to spend years of my life at the dentist and give them all this money. Um, that's not necessarily true. I know it's frustrating when people say, well, it's actually more complicated than that, but it is actually more complicated than that. So teeth are enamel on the outside, which is basically a really hard and dense protective sort of shield. It's, uh, it's the hardest substance made by the human body, a lot, lot harder and stronger than um, the bones in our skeleton. Underneath that shield is what makes up most of the tooth, which is dentin, which is also pretty hard, but it's much more porous and has a higher water content and is not very durable in the long term. Um, and then underneath that is basically the nerve chamber where um, if you have things like sensitivity to cold or a really deep cavity, that is where that sensation is going to come from. So with enamel being really dense and hard, um, Think of it like uh, how long would it take a glass of Coke to dissolve a rock dropped into it? It would take a long time, but it would actually happen because the acidity of things like Coca-Cola or other sodas or lemon juice um, will damage your teeth. Ultimately, it's acid that really damages teeth. It's acid that causes a cavity. It's not bacteria. There are thousands of species of bacteria that live in the human mouth that are not causing any harm at all. But there are some that are bad. And what makes them bad is basically how they will metabolize the plaque that might get left behind if someone doesn't brush and floss regularly because they eat it and then they secrete acid as a waste product and that is what causes cavities. So if you have bacteria that are producing acid or you're drinking a lot of soda all the time, having all these things ferment in your mouth will make you more at risk for cavities to show up and it'll start to slowly sort of dissolve through the enamel. And then once it makes it all the way through the enamel, it will reach the dentin and become very isolated from things like fluoride and hygiene products and you know toothbrush bristles and floss. And that is really the point of no return where we say, oh, you need a, you need a filling because you have a cavity because it's made it all the way through the enamel into the dentin. Um, because those don't get, uh, those don't stay the same size or get smaller. They only get bigger. However, cavities are not cavities because you can have a lot of areas in your mouth. Um, I see it a lot in the flossing zones in between teeth where they touch, where the acid has only dissolved away part of the enamel. And do you need a filling there? Well, not necessarily because the enamel, like I said, is very strong and dense and there are compounds in our saliva, basically dissolved minerals 
that if they reach those areas and the um, pH, the acidity in the mouth is uh, in the correct balance, those um, cavities, those sort of incipient cavities will either stay the same size or even reverse and sort of heal themselves. So it's not that teeth can really regenerate themselves or not, it's that there are protective zones on the outside that if they're kept clean, um, have the chance to not get bigger if you actually have cavities starting there. But that's one of the things we have to assess when we look at somebody's x-rays and their overall picture of diet and, and brushing and flossing habits. Because, you know, if I see a bunch of those incipient cavity lesions in a 17 year old who doesn't floss and drinks energy drinks all the time, I'm probably going to be more aggressive with my, my treatment strategies. I'm probably going to say, yeah, you need a lot of fillings because if we don't do them, I'm certain that these are going to get bigger and it's in your own best interest to have filling there rather than something that we're just sort of going to watch continue decaying. Um, so it's not a one size fits all approach. Um, but uh, one of the reasons that teeth uh, have this capacity to regenerate themselves is really supported by the use of fluoride. Um, and people in Portland, for some reason, have their own ideas about what fluoride is and how harmful it is. But um, as far as things that, you know, why don't we just put this in the water so that people get the public health benefit from it? Fluoride is it. It doesn't get a lot of publicity, but it was discovered as this mineral, basically a naturally occurring, you know, mineral in the same, just in a row of the periodic table as other things. Um, if it's dissolved in uh, water and we get a certain amount of it, it will actually be part of the mineral component of enamel and it will get absorbed into the tooth and form um, the crystals that make up the outside of the enamel into um, an even more firm and durable uh, structure. So it's the kind of thing that if it gets incorporated into your daily life, whether you swallow it and you, you know, absorb it systemically or whether you put it on your teeth and help them remineralize, it makes them even more resistant to decay because the pH has to get even lower in order to harm it. So that's why we like fluoride. So I was going to go through the list of things we do at home with you, uh, but since we're talking about fluoride, let's start with mouthwash. What mm -hmm. should we look for? Should we use mouthwash, first of all? And if we do, do we need to go with alcohol-based? Do we go with the anti-cavity kind that has no alcohol? What are the main components we should be looking for? So mouthwash, along with a lot of dental hygiene products, are um, branded but the differences between all of the different varieties they have on the store shelves are actually pretty minimal. I mean, when you think about it, it's like any other thing like shampoo or whatever. It's all made by different companies that are trying to make them look sexy and flashy so that they, their products sell. But mouthwash is one of those things that actually does have a, a few um, important differences between uh, kinds um, which you brought up, which are worth paying attention to. Um, mouthwash isn't critical, but I like it. I don't think it's as important as just regular brushing and flossing with good technique, but it's a good sort of adjunctive thing to add to someone's routine. Um, there's not really any reason to use 
mouthwash with alcohol in it. Um, so I would look for alcohol-free versions. Um, alcohol isn't necessarily irritating to your gums or your, or your cheeks, but um, it can you know, potentially be abused by, you know, young kids or, or people with, you know, drinking problems. And um, it doesn't provide any, you know, particular advantages over other kinds with just simple sugar alcohols like xylitol or essential oils in them. So I would go for alcohol free and I would look for one that specifically does contain fluoride in it. Um, there are brands that are more famous for just being straight fluoride like ACT, A-C-T. There are other brands like Listerine that are more famous for having essential oils and things that will feel sort of, you know, tingly and refreshing and be extra minty um, that don't contain fluoride. Um, so really you should use whatever works for you. I think something with a little more um, essential oils and disinfectant properties to it, like Listerine or other kinds, are better for people with um, gum disease because if they have a condition where they actually lose part of the bone structure around their teeth because of the persistent um, gum infection that they have, something to kind of keep those bacterial levels lower is probably better. And that's the kind of thing you can even dilute and put into a water pick and irrigate your gums with. Um, if people are more prone to cavities, then I would say, uh, you know, use fluoride, use it often. My personal routine is I floss and then I brush and I personally don't like the taste of toothpaste. So I always want to rinse it out of my mouth, but that doesn't do the fluoride any good because the fluoride is supposed to stay on your teeth, like a sort of topical medicine in order to help them remineralize. Um, so I use just fluoride mouthwash after that. Um, and then the idea is to let it sit on your teeth for as long as possible. So don't eat or drink for, you know, half an hour, an hour afterwards, and don't rinse it out because then, you know, you're just not getting the benefit of it. So don't rinse after you brush. Correct. All or right. don't rinse after you use mouthwash. Okay. You mentioned a water pick, so let's go to that next. Um, mm -hmm. let's say, what's the difference between floss and a water pick? Is one better than the other? And is there anything specific we should be looking for in either? Um, that's a good question. So I think they're both good if I was pressed. I mean, if it was like Desert Island, which one do you bring? It would be floss. Um, because if you use floss correctly with the proper technique, and I think this is one thing that makes people hate flossing because people don't really show them how to use it properly and build the habit. Um, it's good because it wraps around the whole surface of the tooth in between, and it can get to areas that will mechanically just sort of wipe off the plaque that will be there. Um, if you use it properly, it's not just about snapping it through between the teeth and you're done. You really want to wrap it around from either side, you know, the front and back of the back teeth and the left and right of the front teeth. Um, you'd be surprised how deep below the, the gums in between it can get, um, which is where bacteria like to hang out. Um, and if you use it regularly, it's really good for basically destroying the sort of bacterial colonies that will grow on teeth that are sort of necessary to um, set up shop and start, you know, actual cavities. Um, 
part of the reason we like to keep people on a regular schedule of daily flossing or twice daily brushing is because that's what the research shows for disrupting the bacteria before that they can um, reach the stage where they cause problems. Um, water picks, on the other hand, are really good, I think, especially for people who either have a hard time with flossing or who have the, the gum disease that I was talking about. I should probably mention that. Um, Half of uh, Americans have some degree of severity of what we call periodontitis, which is a good Scrabble word. Um, it uh, basically means inflammation of the things that are around our teeth, the supporting tissues, so gums and bone. Um, so 50% of Americans have this disease in some degree of severity. You can have a mild case, moderate or super severe. What happens is um, instead of cavities where the acids produced by the bacteria will start to dissolve the teeth, the bacteria that build up around our gums and stick to the surfaces of our roots um, can be really tenacious. And some people have the particular combination of, you know, family genetics and, um, you know, immune system sort of chemistry to cause their bodies to see this sort of insult and inflammation. And if it doesn't go away because it's not kept adequately clean, they say, okay, well, we're going to destroy the gum and bone tissue that's around it because um, it's an insult and we need to run away from it. And what that basically causes is for people's roots to become more exposed because their gum and bone tissue will recede um, because of the, the bacteria there. And that wouldn't be a problem if they were kept clean, but part of the problem with the disease is not many people know they have it. Sometimes you need to go to a dentist and basically get numb and have a really deep cleaning in order to get all of that scuzz off of your teeth. And also it can present in ways that will um, open up areas against a tooth that are really difficult to clean. Um, it's hard to sort of imagine this, but we talk about um, periodontal pockets, which are basically areas of bone loss that cause um, just in between the teeth, usually some sort of local recession. And that's not the kind of thing that you can get into with floss because it's a pocket and floss can only go as deep as uh, you know the bone on either side. So water picks are great for people with that kind of condition because um, basically they're just glorified pressure washers. Um, they're messy, so you have to hold your head over a sink when you use them, but um, they're very effective at reducing those bacteria levels because they have this little angled nozzle that will um, fire this stream of pressurized water. And you can use water, or you can use salt water or dilute mouthwash or whatever you want. Um, and, you know, dilution is the solution to pollution, as they say. So rinsing those areas out and getting the bacterial levels down um, is, uh, is good because it will allow your body to sort of heal any, any damage that the bacteria are causing and reduce the inflammation. And that will cause your gums to not be so swollen and it will make it easier to get into those areas and keep them clean in general. Um, so that's really what I think water picks are great for. Um, and, uh, they're also kind of nice because they have a handle. So, you know, it's easy to brush your back teeth because the toothbrushes have handles, 
Floss does not, unless you buy specialized uh, sort of aids for it, um, which you can do, but um, then, you know, they get gross or break and you have to throw them away and put more plastic into the ocean. So for people who have a hard time reaching their back teeth with uh, just floss that's wrapped around their fingers, I say buy a water pick. It'll be better than nothing because it will be smaller and it's angled and helps you sort of get back in those areas better. Okay. Um, you mentioned toothbrushes, so let's go to that. We've got our normal manual toothbrush. We have uh, the electric ones that spin in circles. And then we also mm -hmm. have the electric ones that just kind of vibrate and pulse. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm sure there are many more, but what are your thoughts on the choices? Well, it's kind of like anything. It's not so much about the tool and more about how you use it and whether it fits your particular sort of circumstances. Um, the research shows that the main advantage to using an electric toothbrush over a manual one is timing because a lot of people don't really realize what two minutes actually feels like when they're brushing their teeth, but it's supposed to be two full minutes. So if you divide your mouth into quadrants, um, you know, you have, let's say seven teeth, if you've had your wisdom teeth out uh, per quadrant, and there are a lot of surfaces and nooks and crannies in there, and you really need to spend the time getting into them. Otherwise, you know, you retain plaque or, or calculus buildup and that stuff gets really tenacious and it's harder to get off. So if you use a manual toothbrush properly, which is really difficult and actually spend two full minutes, you know, 30 seconds per quadrant, um, moving it in little circles and angled properly to clean the, you know, little surface of your tooth that gets below your gum tissue and everything, then it's totally fine. And, you know, we have to see people and evaluate how good of a job they're doing with plaque control and say, oh, you use a manual well, you're great with it, like no reason and your money on an electric one. But electric ones are nice because they come with those built-in timers to show us what two minutes actually is. And if you have trouble getting the angulation or the movements right of making those little circular motions, um, they're great for that because they do all the work for you. You really just have to hold them gently and move them back and forth. A lot of people will think that brushing aggressively will do a better job, which is not actually the case. It can actually cause damage to your gums and your teeth by physically like brushing them away. Um, so electric toothbrushes are also nice because they require very little pressure and a lot of them will actually have sensors that will sort of pulse angrily at you if you're pushing too hard um, and you don't wanna piss your toothbrush off, so. Um, <laughs> But the, the electric ones, as I say, are nice, I would say for most people because of the timer aspect and the pressure aspect and the movement. Um, you kind of have to get the movement going in some kind of dynamic direction to scrub the, the plaque off. Um, but as far as circular or vibrating, I don't know that it actually makes that much difference. Um, it seems like a lot of people feel like the ones that move in circles do a slightly better job. And I think it feels a little less uncomfortable um, than having this, you know, row of bristles that is sort of vibrating um, because it can feel kind of like a ticklish sensation if you use the, the vibrating ones. Um, but it's whatever you want. It's whatever you want to use. If you're, you know, if $80 or whatever they cost matters to you, then I would just say, you know, go for the circular one. 
the vibrating ones do seem to be a little gentler. And um, if you don't mind the sensation or you can get used to the sensation, then that'll be fine too. But uh, after that, you know, electronic devices come with a lot of bells and whistles these days. And you can decide whether it's worth your money. I would say probably just the bare bones versions are fine because most of the really basic like entry level models will have the built-in timer and um, pulse if you're brushing too hard and all of that stuff. But if you want the one that has the, you know, special sort of massage feature or comes with the app that you can download on your phone to show you what areas you're supposed to be getting and how long you've been brushing for, um, then by all means, spend the money on it. That's the kind of thing that can get kids into, into brushing um, to actually show someone visually what's going on. Um, and, uh, you know, if you think it will help, then go ahead. Great. Well, we'll get to kids in a moment, but I want to talk toothpaste right before we do that. Mm -hmm. um, there are whitening toothpastes, fluoride toothpaste, baking soda toothpaste, uh, activated charcoal. I, I, they're more than I can personally keep count of. What, Me too. <laughs> what are we, you know, if again, same, same as the, um, the mouthwash question, what are we looking for? And uh, is there anything outstanding that of note that you'd like to share? Um, maybe let's start with the bad first. Um, I would stay away from charcoal toothpastes. For some reason in recent years, this has become like a really hot new thing. And I think it's because charcoal does have a good um, background of use in things like chemistry or um, I don't know, poison control, wellness products like facial scrubs or whatever. For some reason, everybody's nuts about charcoal right now. Um, it is abrasive and it's too abrasive to be in toothpaste. It doesn't provide any significant benefit other than um, uh, the, the normal ingredients that were in toothpaste already. There's no reason to use it in particular. It's not going to make your teeth whiter or your smile brighter or your breath fresher or anything like that. And it's probably going to do some damage over time because the charcoal particles uh, can be too abrasive for teeth. So don't buy it. It's not worth it. It doesn't do anything. Um, kind of same for whitening, actually. Sometimes whitening toothpastes will advertise you know, that they do the job that they say they're going to. Um, they really don't. They don't work very well for whitening teeth. Um, if you want to um, get your teeth whiter, what you really have to do is use some kind of bleaching product. And they sell those over the counter too, but, you know, huge surprise, they don't work that well. Um, to get good results for whitening, you really have to use a stronger amount of the, um, the peroxide chemicals, the bleaching chemicals and um, you need to keep them on your teeth for at least just a brush with them. And for that, you know, you can talk to your dentist about whitening gels and, and trays and stuff like that. Um, but whitening toothpaste is probably not worth the gimmick. Um, baking soda is certainly not bad for your teeth. It's kind of nice because it is a slightly alkaline um, uh, substance when it's dissolved in water. So that can be something that's kind of nice for keeping the pH level from getting too low in your mouth and making it so that the, the overall level of acidity for causing cavities is kept low. Um, and it won't hurt you. So if you don't mind it, then you can use it. But really all you need is toothpaste with fluoride in it. 
and that's what almost all of the major brands are. I know they come in all kinds of different flavors and shiny packages and tooth graphics and swirls and sparkles and everything, but it's just what you like. It's just what you want to use. Um, there's not really any reason to buy a toothpaste that doesn't have fluoride in it. There are people who do that and what I have found is that if you try to engage them in a conversation about it, it ends up being one of those conversations where nobody changes their mind anyway. So it's kind of just like not worth either person's time to talk about it. Um, but toothpaste without fluoride in it will probably provide some benefit just in terms of, you know, having those sort of gently abrasive particles that will help remove plaque um, and uh, freshen breath and everything. But toothpaste is just such an effective way of delivering fluoride to teeth that um, there's no reason not to use it. Um, and it's best if you can avoid rinsing it out after you brush with it, unlike me, um, just sort of spit most of it out and let the rest sit on your teeth and soak into them. Um, that's the best way to get the benefit. Um, so, uh, sorry, just going on this fluoride thing. Um, some of these uh, tubeless toothpastes, the the, um, the, the bite size things, you know, you, you chew on it and then it turns into toothpaste. Oh they yeah. Seem to tout, I had to look it up, erith erythritol instead uh -huh. of fluoride and claim that it is the same or better. Um, uh -huh. do you know anything about that? Uh, I don't know much about this like tablet form of toothpaste, but, um, you know, that's the kind of claim that someone would basically make uh, if they don't want someone to look too closely at what they're claiming. <laughs> I mean, what is better? It's like, you have to ask the question of what is this substance doing? How does it work? Why is it good for my teeth? What does better mean in that context? Um, so looking at that claim, I know that erythritol is, is just one of a, a member, it's a member of the family of sugar alcohols like xylitol. And these are things that taste sweet um, because they make the you know, receptors on our taste buds fire in response to them, but they're not actually things that we can absorb into our digestive tract, which makes them really helpful for use as sugar substitutes. Um, so basically they will taste sweet and you'll swallow them, um, but they won't get absorbed. They just sort of pass through you and um, they can be useful xylitol, erythritol and things like um, chewing gum and mouthwash and all that sort of stuff, but it doesn't chemically do the same job as fluoride um, in terms of helping your teeth remineralize. Um, fluoride getting a little into the chemistry of it, um, when it's dissolved is a negatively charged ion. And the substance that makes up the, the hard crystals in our teeth and our skeletal bones and everything is called um, hydroxyapatite. And when acids will break that mineral down and dissolve it into its uh, components, um, it will dissolve into things like calcium and phosphorus and then a, a hydroxide ion, which also has a negative charge. So the reason that fluoride works is because it forms that ion at the center of this hexagonal crystal, hydroxyapatite. And um, essentially this is really boiling it down, but it's basically just magnets sticking together <laughs> just in terms of actual molecules or, or atoms, um, because one thing has a negative charge, another thing has a positive charge, and they attract and they stick together. 
and that is the thing that makes up the or, those uh, inorganic bonds. So in tooth crystals, the fluoride ion will um, insert itself into that crystal structure and basically be a stronger magnet than the hydroxide ion. So it holds onto its components a little more tightly and that is what makes it resistant to decay. So erythritol being a sugar alcohol will not have that same chemistry. It will basically be something that might have some antibacterial activity um, and it will probably taste sweet and you know, work well as just a general additive in toothpaste, but um, it's, uh, it's not gonna do the job that fluoride does. Nothing beats fluoride. All right, nothing beats fluoride. Uh, so final question, cause it's, I know I've been using up a lot of your time, but- um... No, no, it's fine. <laughs> a lot of parents are very nervous about getting their kids to the dentist for all the same reason that adults are nervous to go to the dentist. Mm -hmm. um, but especially with the various new strains and kids in school, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, the list goes on. Um, people are nervous about bringing their kids either to their first appointments or to follow-up appointments, um, particularly the nine and younger group. Is there anything we should be doing at home or is there any reason that these children should be going to the dentist where the risk outweighs the benefit of keeping them home? Yeah. Um, well, I have my own opinions about schools reopening, which I don't need to share here because I think we just get into the weeds. But um, like I say, you know, if you're going to be a patient at a dental practice, whether you're an adult or a kid, uh, the person who's most at risk is going to be the dentist and the staff. And that is why we wear all the N95s and masks and safety goggles and gloves and everything. That's to protect us from any particular, you know, disease that our patients might be um, at risk of carrying. The safest person is definitely going to be the patient because we wipe the rooms down. Anything the last patient touched or could have touched will get wiped with um, chemicals that will absolutely kill COVID and, you know, flu virus and bacteria, all the, anything that could hurt you. Um, so in terms of the risk that it poses to your child to bring them into the dentist, it's not going to be any more than it would any other patient. Like just because they're a young person doesn't mean they're more at risk than any other person. Um, and I would say, you know, it never hurts to bring your kid in. A lot of times kids will get really nervous because they'll have been scared by their parents or their older siblings about how much the shot they're going to get is going to hurt, um, which I would recommend not uh, trying to do. Don't scare your kids of the dentist because we're not here to hurt them. We're here to help them. Um, but, you know, daily life right now looks really weird. Maybe people are eating more candy and snacking because they're frustrated at having to go to school online, drinking more soda or energy drinks, not brushing their teeth because their parents are sick of supervising them after supervising them all day for being, um, you know, uh, uh, doing distance learning. Um, it never hurts to take a look. It always helps having more information I mean, that's why we like to see people every six months, ideally, even if there aren't any problems, because it's another data point. You know, you get to keep track of where someone is in their timeline, and then you get a good handle on sort of a baseline or if problems develop, how quickly they develop. And if a kid has a cavity, um, it's a big deal. I mean, if a kid has a deep cavity, it's a really big deal because 
baby teeth have much thinner enamel than um, adult teeth. And when they get going, they can go really fast and they can turn into the kind of thing that will require, you know, basically a nerve removal and, you know, uh, something like a, a temporary crown instead of just a big filling or even having to take a tooth out. And um, if you're a dentist working on a kid, uh, it's stressful <laughs> sometimes. Um, I could never be a pediatric dentist. I don't know how those people do it. I mean, I know they love it, but kids can be challenging to work on. That doesn't mean we don't want to help them, but um, I would much prefer they don't develop the problems in the first place. That basically starts with not eating, you know, and drinking things that are prone to giving them cavities and going to the dentist regularly and getting x-rays and checkups because, um, even if it's scary to venture into the outside world, I, I really just can't imagine a much safer place to go if you have to leave your house than a dentist office. Office. It's much safer than going to the grocery store. I mean, people in the grocery store aren't, you know, enforced with how to wear their masks properly. Everyone in a dental office knows about infection control. <laughs> a dentist um, is the new amusement So part. yeah, bring your kids in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, bring your kids in and, and make sure that they're doing okay and that their problems don't get uh, out of control. Great. Um, I lied. I do have one more question. Um, That's okay. so you're talking about disinfecting everything and how great dentists are, but earlier in the hour, you mentioned that some dentists are fast and loose and others are really taking this seriously. Is there any advice you could give to people uh, regarding how to vet a dentist before they're in the chair? Mm, yeah, that's a good question. So that, that previous comment about some dentists being uh, maybe more cowboys than the rest of us um, was during the period of um, when we weren't sure okay. how this was going. And before we had established, like all the dental boards had established regulations for how to um, do dentistry safely in the COVID era. So now, you know, I would think that the average person is doing a perfectly fine job of being safe. But if you are concerned, then it never hurts to just give the, you know, front desk person a call and be like, hey, like, I'm nervous. I, I want to come see you, but I just want to make sure that it's safe to do so. Can you tell me about your safety protocols? And um, the biggest thing that I would probably recommend looking out for is um, distancing because most dentists are going to use the barriers and sterile instruments and everything that are um, uh, necessary to do it safely. But distancing is something that is really easy to kind of let slip and fall by the wayside. So you wanna look for them having some sort of system in place for limiting like the number of people who can hang out in the waiting room at one time and whether they're asking patients to wear their masks when they're not in the actual operatory room. Like we always make sure, oh, let's take the bib off and have you wear your mask if you need to get up and use the bathroom because that's gonna involve walking down the hall and you know potentially getting close to another person. And it's great if you can wear masks all the time um, and it's even better if you can wear masks and stay six feet apart. Like we have to work indoors and you know we can run our HVAC systems and run air purifiers and everything. And that's great. Like it helps keep it down, but the, the aerosol levels down, but um, you know, probably the most important part as sad as it is, is just staying physically away from other people. 
Um, so what we do at my office is uh, we have signs posted that require people to call us before we can let them in. Um, and uh, that way we can make sure that, oh, the last person who's leaving has made it out of the building or, oh yeah, there's only one person in the waiting room and they're in the far corner. So someone else can come in and stay six feet away. Um, it's just to sort of avoid those traffic jams. Um, and then uh, whether they're screening people's temperatures and having them sign forms, we do that. We, we take our own temperatures every day and we take the temperature of um, every patient who we see every day, um, just with one, an infrared thermometer. And then we record it in their chart. Um, and then we ask them, you know, have you had any flu-like symptoms, fevers, that kind of thing. Um, and we've also started documenting whether people have had their um, first or second vaccine doses because some of our patients are, you know, work in healthcare or are first responders and are getting getting vaccinated. So just keeping track of these kinds of things, I think will um, show a nervous person that the staff is on top of it and they're taking it seriously. And that's as safe as you can be. Well, speaking of vaccines, you and I chatted briefly and we can make this part quick. Um, you did get your first dose already. So congratulations. Mm -hmm. it's good to have a front care, uh, front end healthcare workers getting vaccinated. Can you yeah. share uh, your age, comorbidities, allergies, and which which um, brand you got? Uh, yes, so I am 33. Um, uh, comorbidities, you mean uh, effects, side effects of the vaccine? Comorbidities would be uh, diabetes, high BMI. Uh, oh, health conditions. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, I'm healthy. I don't have any, any conditions like, uh, you know, healthy heart and lungs and everything. Um, I, the only allergy that I have is to uh, an antibiotic augmentin. Apparently I got a rash when I was a baby, but that's pretty much it. Um, otherwise, uh, normal, normal, healthy guy. Um, uh, what else was on the list? <laughs> Did you get Pfizer or Moderna? Oh, I got Moderna. Okay. I got it through my, um, my regular sort of health insurance through work. Great. Um, and and I got it uh, two weeks ago now. Um, I had a sore arm for like maybe a day or two, but definitely nothing worse than getting a flu shot. Um, other people who work in my office got the shot and got like a super sore arm. Some of them got a little bit of nausea symptoms and things like that, but it was all temporary. I mean, it didn't last more than a day or two. Um, and uh, from what I've heard, um, it's really the second dose, the sort of booster shot that will um, lay you flat if it's going to, um, where people get things like, you know, bad fatigue and body aches and stuff. And everything I've heard is that it's, it's temporary. It only lasts a day or two, but I am definitely doing my second one on a weekend in case I just need to lie in bed the whole day. That makes sense. And we're going to, we're going to chat again after your second dose. Mm -hmm. um, for the arm pain, did you end up taking anything to help or did you do anything differently? Yeah, actually. So it didn't affect my ability to work. Like my deltoid, my shoulder was just a little sore, but I kind of was, uh, uh, for some reason I thought of taking ibuprofen much later than I would have for something else. Um, but I just took an ibuprofen and it helped a lot. I think it's just sort of the inflammatory pain from having the injection that was causing me um, grief. 
So I just took like one or two of those um, and uh, it helped the pain a lot. And then, you know, the next day it was totally fine. Great. So you did go to work after your first vaccine. I did. Yeah. Yeah. I was feeling fine and I didn't think that my arm would get so sore that I couldn't work. And, you know, as a dentist, I have to use my hands for everything, but um, you know, I've, I've worked with other, you know, sore muscles or whatever before, and it, it didn't, it didn't affect anything. Great. Yeah. Thank you. Well, is there anything I missed and we will have an opportunity to touch base again, but I don't think so. We covered a lot. Um, It was a good talk though. I mean, I'm, I'm just glad to, you know, be working, uh, to have the ability to work and do it safely and take care of people. Um, especially with, uh, uh, you know, things like the clenching and stuff that our dark times are doing to us. Um, but no, I think, I think that's a good sort of catch all for what dentistry is and what we do and how we modify it for, uh, for this pandemic. But again, I just want to encourage people like you don't have to stay away from us. We're safe places to go and we want to help you. Even if it's just to tell you that everything looks good and you don't have any cavities or problems. I mean, that's cause for celebration, baby. You gotta, you gotta take it as good news when the dentist tells you you have nothing wrong with you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And remember that uh, dentists are nice people and approachable people. Yes. If you don't get along with one because of personality differences, that's fine. Just go see someone else. But we're, we're here because we want to help. So, you know, please just let us help. All right. Well, thank you for your time today, McGarrett. Thanks a lot, Sam. It's good to talk to you. You too.